Listener Production. So, you've been elected to Parliament. What happens next? Well, welcome to The Briefing. Today is the first day of school for 35 brand new politicians. You're lined up there like it's your first day of school. They literally give you a show bag. (laughs) They give you a map. It's pretty confronting for people that have, I guess, on the outside, you know, spent decades building up their career. All of a sudden, it's back to square one. O-Week for Polly's. We'll find out how it works and what the job actually involves day to day. Because there's been a dispute between the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and the independents after he reduced their parliamentary advisor head count from four to one. They say making their job almost impossible. That's all in our briefing with Annika Smethurst. First, Katrina Blowers, the Queen of Bali, is here for today's headlines. How was your holiday? <laughs> oh my gosh, I've been dying to get back to Bali. I've got to tell you, it's even better than it was before. Uh, it seems like they've spent the pandemic rebuilding and making things even more beautiful. And it's just so nice to see the Balinese back doing what they do best, which is epic tourism. Yeah, they are amazing hosts, the most beautiful people. And I didn't think Bali could get any better, but um, there you go. It's such no, a nice No, you've got to get yourself over there, Tommy. Tons of people with little babies. So <laughs> I think this could be in your future. Yep, time to dust off my Bintang singlet. I'd love to go there. <laughs> um, all right, let's get into the news. It is Tuesday, June 28. Well, Anthony Albanese has arrived in Spain for a critical NATO summit. Yeah, so interestingly, Australia's not actually a NATO member, but we've been invited, along with New Zealand, South Korea and Japan, to come and reaffirm our support for Ukraine. What Vladimir Putin has done with this invasion is to unify NATO and to unify democratic nations against this action. Talks are expected to focus heavily on Ukraine, with China high on the agenda, as well as the possibility of Sweden and Finland joining the alliance too. And ahead of the NATO summit, it was announced that they'll increase the strength of their rapid reaction force to 300,000 troops from 40,000, so that's a more than sevenfold increase. Meantime, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has told G7 leaders not to let the war drag on over winter. He's asking for more military aid, sanctions and also some security guarantees. And that comes after a Russian missile strike hit a crowded shopping centre in the central Ukrainian city, Kremenchuk, killing at least 10 people and wounding 40. And yesterday we're reporting on the first strikes on Kiev in three weeks. The first lot of Australia's census data from last year's survey is out today and it shows a really interesting shift in the makeup of our population. Yeah, so for the first time, boomers and millennials are in equal number, both generations accounting for 21.5% of the population. Now, a decade ago, the baby boomer group was 25% and millennials were 20. Now, if you're wondering where we draw the line on those generations and where you fit, Boomers are people born between 1946 and 65, and millennials are born between 81 and 95. So I just scrape in, and um, Katrina can speak for herself. (laughs) I'm gonna. I'm definitely not a boomer. Let's just leave it at that. (laughs) Australia is also now a majority nation of migrants, with 51.5% of all people either born overseas or having a parent born in another country. Yeah, and the religious numbers are quite interesting. So for the first time ever, the number of Australians identifying as Christian has dropped below 50% to 44%, and based on current trends, non-believers could overtake Christians as the biggest religious bloc in Australia by 2026. So it looks like I'm part of a trend there, Katrina. 
Yeah, your book has really started something, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) And here's another story in my favour. New dads could soon receive more parental leave. Yeah, so according to News Corp, the new government is set to start discussions with businesses about offering men up to 20 weeks paid leave for the first two years of a child's life. That's pretty significant. Yeah, well, that could be huge. Currently, the primary caregiver receives 18 weeks of leave at the minimum wage. Men usually can take two weeks of that Commonwealth-funded dad or partner pay, which means that generally the women take most of the leave and it's more viable to have them stay at home. Yeah, it is such a juggle trying to sit down and crunch those numbers and and work it out. Uh, The Social Services Minister, Amanda Rishworth, has flagged she wants more reform to reflect the changing gender roles. And imagine what this could do culturally. It, It could be a real game changer. Yeah, well, there's these all these gender roles that fall straight into place, don't they, where uh, the mother often runs all the household stuff, does a lot of the mental labour whilst the dad focuses on his career, mm. and that can create a lot of tension between young couples. The journalist who created the Teacher's Pet podcast has taken the stand in the Chris Dawson trial, and Chris Dawson is accused of murdering Lynette Dawson in 1982. He's pleaded not guilty. So yesterday in the court, Chris Dawson's barrister asked Hedley Thomas, the journalist behind the podcast, if he thought Dawson was guilty of murder before starting the whole thing. And Thomas replied, no, I thought it was likely, but I still had an open mind about it. I wanted to learn more about it and I became more sure as time went on. Thomas told the court there have been about 60 million downloads of the podcast internationally, but only a fraction of them would have listened in full. And when he was asked, how much money do you receive each time someone listens to it? Thomas said, nothing. More disruptive climate protests are expected this week after Sydney peak hour traffic was brought to a standstill at around 8 o'clock yesterday morning when a woman stopped her car right at the entrance of the Harbour Tunnel and locked her neck to her steering wheel with a bike lock. It is incredibly dangerous, unacceptable behaviour. That was Acting Assistant Commissioner Paul Dunstan there. So the 22-year-old woman was part of the Blockade Australia movement. She was eventually cut free before the tunnel was reopened just after 9am, so basically a whole hour. She live-streamed the incident, saying she couldn't stay silent after watching the devastation of two 100-year floods, and she was from Lismore. If we do take a stand, we can achieve so much. I am one person. I'm locked onto one car. The entrance to this tunnel is blocked. So far, around 10 climate protesters have been charged. Uh, They face a $22,000 fine and also two years in jail under tough new protest laws. And even more people could be arrested. Police are reviewing CCTV and body cam footage. Meanwhile, the protesters, Blockade Australia, are saying they've got action planned all week. So it could get very messy on the streets of Sydney. Katrina, we'll catch you later. Thanks so much for coming back from Bali. I know that must have been hard. Um, (laughs) I do need a detox now, though. So back on the straight and narrow for me, some healthy living. Nice one. All right, Annika's about to join me as we talk about the first day of school at Parliament House. So you will have heard in our headlines, there's been a fight over the last few days between the Albanese government and some of the new crossbench members of parliament. So the Albanese government has cut the number of parliamentary advisers they get from four down to one, and they're saying this means they won't be able to do the job properly. 
So this spat highlights a pretty important question, which is what does the job of being a federal politician actually involve? There's 46 brand new politicians starting since the recent election and the lower house MPs, 35 of them, are all starting a two-day orientation course in Canberra today. Now, some of these new pollies don't come from your standard political background. One's a doctor, you've got a journalist, a dolphin trainer, a former rugby player in Pocock. So they've got a pretty steep learning curve to get up to speed on how to start this new and very complex job. So to find out what they're going to be learning and what the job actually involves, we've got Annika Smethurst here who covered the minutiae and the day-to-day of Parliament for many, many years. So Annika, where do our politicians normally come from and what makes some of these new politicians so different? I'd like to say the new ones are different. There are doctors in there. There are journalists. In fact, Pocock's not even the first rugby player to turn his talents to Parliament. But it is good to get some different backgrounds, I guess, because when you look at the major parties, they do tend to come from two certain backgrounds, which, you know, it makes sense given where their party says they represent. So if you look at Labor, for instance, there's fewer tradies, fewer people that have actually been on the tools or, or workers, but a lot of them have union backgrounds. So they've worked for the major unions, whether that be the ACTU or the nurses union, and that's how they've sort of channeled themselves into parliament. If you look at the other side, there used to be a lot of small business owners and the liberals that tends to be now more lawyers. Uh, a lot of them are lawyers. There still is a lot of small business owners um, from the coalition and all of them have really done staffer stints. Now, that's a really controversial point. People say we don't just want a room full of staffers. I agree in some sense. You don't want that. The people have had no other real life job, but it does work as a little bit of an apprenticeship, I think, too, because as you pointed out, when you come to Parliament, there's a lot of stuff you don't know. We can all sort of sit on the sidelines and yell, but the practical day-to-day stuff of the job is very different. Yeah, it's a tricky balance, isn't it? You want to understand politics. So those roles like being an advisor potentially being a union representative, they do help you understand politics and the way it works. But as the people, as the voters, we want people that represent us. And so if the majority of them are are from the trade union side or political advisors, or they've come through the young liberals or young labour, that's not really representing Australia that well. Yes and no. I think it's a really hard one. I agree that you sort of look at these jobs and go, well, that doesn't represent anybody. It's very hard to say to somebody who, um, give me a job, name a job, a, a sparky and say, quit your job. Tell us which side of politics you prefer. Wear it, you know, on your chest. Tell your family, tell your friends, open yourself up to abuse. Suspend your job for a few months, put your hand up, run for parliament. And then you might not get in, you know. So mm. I don't know the answer of actually how to encourage more real world, if that's what we're going to call them, people in. But I do think at least this time that has been achieved through some of the the teals. We've got a lot of uh, business people, which traditionally would have been members of the Liberal Party, you would have thought, those sort of small business background people. I think it is important to get there. I don't know how many more journalists we we need in there. There are a lot of former journalists who have become politicians. I don't think they've all done a bad job at all, but that's definitely an overrepresented group in Parliament. Well, in a way, you could argue the system kind of works because it's not just this time around where we've got a whole bunch of independents who do have this kind of real world experience. Um, You think back a couple of terms where we had (laughs) Ricky Muir, who was from the Mm. Motoring Enthusiast Party. That was also when Jackie Lambie came into the parliament. Glenn Lazarus, the former rugby league player, was there as well. So 
it sort of works in a way, I guess, that you have people in the in the two major parties who represent those more typical political kind of trajectories. But then you almost have this crossbench of real community members who, depending on the balance of power, will actually have a lot of say over what gets up. A lot of people are sort of speak down about the crossbench, think they get in the way. There's been uh, a lot of different adjectives used to describe them over the time. I think it's unfair. I think this is how the system works and they are more likely to be attracted to those positions, to not join a party. You know, if you were someone like Monique Ryan who won in Kuyong, she'd had an incredible medical career. You know, should she not have done that and entered politics earlier, you know, she wouldn't have uh, contributed in that way. So it, it's a way of allowing people, I guess, to have their careers and when they're looking for a career change to do it. But it's pretty hard to entice people away mid-career, you know, maybe when they could contribute the most Mm. out of what they're doing and into parliament. So this is where this whole debate about the number of advisors they need really sort of starts to get some traction because these people are new to parliament. They've got to understand all the complexities of the way legislation is debated and then enacted. And so to pull back on their advisors is clearly piss them off, quite frankly, some of those people that are coming from different backgrounds. So tell us how the two-day orientation works and what they're really trying to get these people across. Look, it's quite funny. I've showed up to one of these before and people who are quite, you know, high up previously in their lives. I remember I went to one a few years ago with an MP. I'm sure he won't mind me saying he's been there two terms now. Peter Khalil. And outside of this, he was a national security advisor. He worked at the Brookings Institute. And then all of a sudden you're lined up there like it's your first day of school. They literally give you a show bag. <laughs> they give you a map. And it's, um, it's pretty confronting for people that have, I guess, on the outside, you know, spent decades building up their career, all of a sudden it's back to square one. You're all considered equal, which is a wonderful thing, I think, in our democracy, but also probably quite confronting. Look, there is also a lot to learn. You know, from the outside, you watch question time or you can see press conferences. There's a lot of really boring stuff that goes on in Parliament that you have to know too. A lot of procedural stuff too, like understanding what's happening in the chamber, which goes all day. It doesn't just go from question time. Sometimes there's only a handful of people in there. They need a certain number to for it to tick over. You do speeches about your electorate. A lot of it is really mundane and boring, but it's archaic language. Getting your head around that, I think, um, is often difficult. There is just a lot of, um, I guess boring, day-to-day, mundane stuff in Parliament that they've got to know about. Yeah, so there's all that procedural stuff. And then I imagine the real guts of the job is analysing and understanding proposed legislation. So how hard is that? Is there a lot of background knowledge you need to be even able to, to read a bill properly and know what it's saying? Yeah, look, I think there is. Um, no one ever gave me a lesson. I sort of had to uh, pick it up over the years. But anybody can Google legislation, you know, if you want to know any law, for instance, some of the COVID ones we've had um, over the time, you can go and actually read them. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of lawyer talk, which is mm. why we see a lot of former lawyers go in. And I think it definitely is. If you're looking at being a politician, I think it can only help you. Maybe not practising, but doing a law degree and understanding those sort of um, wordy, big documents, I think it certainly um, must help along the the way. Having said that, there are ways around it. So as you said, the, the crossbench are really upset about this because usually in the last parliament at least they had four staff. Now you'd sort of think one would do media, you'd have one doing the sort of parliamentary stuff, doing speeches and getting yourself organised for the day in parliament. You'd have another one looking through legislation. Now the MP should read the legislation too and mm. a lot of them do, a lot of them don't. 
if you're in a major party, it's less important because you're usually told how to vote. In Labor, if you vote against your party, uh, you're not a Labor politician anymore. The Libs are a little less uh, strict on that. You're allowed to cross the floor if you remember the coalition. I can understand um, some of the disappointment coming from the crossbench. And there's a whole other side to their job that we, we don't see as often in the news, which is the Senate committees and the parliamentary inquiries. How much work goes into those? A huge amount, and that's where a lot of legislation starts. Every day in Parliament, uh, there'll be a committee or an inquiry. Now, these take usually a couple of Labor MPs, a couple of Liberal MPs, maybe one of the independents and that. They try and balance them out pretty fairly. Um, often the big ones, you know, they'll be government majority so that if there's um, a report, it sort of has the government's opinion in there. But they go around the country, they listen to evidence on whatever it is. There's been ones on medicinal marijuana. There's been, you know, things on nuclear. Um, you name it, they can get one of these up. It's usually quite bipartisan. It's really interesting. You can stream these all day so you don't have to actually go and watch them. They go to country towns, they hear evidence, and then they compile a report. Now, that is a lot of work for an MP to be doing, and that's the sort of stuff they do when Parliament isn't sitting. They often end up framing legislation. You know, they get all this research, this body of research, and then they put it forward to their parties or it forms an independence bill or something like this. And this is where they, you know, take legislation from initially. It often isn't just pulled out of sort of thin air. So you can see where the government's sort of heading on things. That takes up a lot of time. Now, there are extra staff allocated to these sort of roles, but if you're coming in as a, um, no disrespect to David Pocock, but as somebody who has spent your life in the sporting arena, he's obviously a really smart guy too. It is a huge amount of work and a change to get your head around, especially the senators, I, I think more so than the lower house, uh, calling for more staff. I think they're going to find they're going to need it. Look, it all sounds like a lot to learn in two days. So <laughs> once they get the show bag, how can you teach people so much in so little time to understand not just the the procedures of the Senate or the House of Representatives, but all the work that must go into those committees and inquiries that happen in non-sitting weeks? Look, I'd say uh, a little bit of osmosis and a little bit of fake it till you make it. Now, I've seen over the past, especially fresh young MPs that come in and they want to pop over to the Senate side where the press gallery is and jump in and out of TV studios. And this works really well for us because often they're willing to talk and often fresh ones make mistakes. But a lot of the sort of party advice to new MPs is, you know, for your first term, just watch, just observe, make sure you're going to win your seat again, do a lot of that. You've got to think, you know, these people still have to go back to their electorate and uh, manage to, you know, do local events and, and, and try and win it again next time. So there's a lot of different elements when you're an MP. And I do think when you start to see people that have been there five minutes appearing on TV uh, all the time and trying to make it um, a little bit about them, uh, it usually ends in disaster. <laughs> Not always, but it often does. So usually the advice to new MPs is you've got three years to just get one term under your belt, listen, learn from people that have been there. And there's also a lot of public servants. What people don't realise about Parliament is there's a parliamentary library. There's so many staff that work in Parliament that don't work for either side. Um, they work for the House of Representatives or they work for the Senate and they have great knowledge. They've been there for generations. They're the people that can really guide the new MPs through this really, really strange job because all of a sudden any hierarchy that existed in the real world isn't there. Uh, it's all 
manufactured, I guess, if you for want of a better word, all of a sudden it's Labor in. It was previously the coalition. They're the ones in charge. The prime minister's the top dog, then the ministers, and then backbenchers sort of progressively down the chain. So you have to learn a new set of rules, a new hierarchy, uh, new sort of words, new respect has to be paid to different people and, and, and different honours. So it's uh, unlike anything else you, they would have experienced, I'd imagine. Yeah, well, that whole pathway makes sense when you're in one of the major parties, but when you're an independent who's just come to power on this wave of dissatisfaction at the way things have been done, promising to shake things up, it's going to be a lot trickier and probably comes with a lot of pressure as well. So uh, they've started off with the fight about advisors. We'll see where it goes from here. <laughs> Great learning about the, the induction process. Thanks, Annika. No worries. Tomorrow on The Briefing, how America is responding to the big Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade. Listener.